Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 22nd overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 21, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 14, episode 22, or what the German regionalization team named Double Play. I'm your host, John. In episode 21, Cooper successfully assesses how the dead body in the sheriff's station pointing to a chess move became Wyndham Earl's first pawn. Audrey and Bobby plan to reclaim her father's sanity, but all we see later is Ben marching on Washington as General Lee while they, Jerry, and Dr. Jacoby observe. Shelley is attacked by newly awake Leo, and she and Bobby fend him off. Lucy enlists Doc Hayward to convince Dick and Andy that little Nicky is not the devil. And James stays at Evelyn's place too long and learns that he's been set up in Jeffrey's murder, though Evelyn has a change of heart and helps him escape. Ed talks awkwardly about Nadine and plans a bit of a future with Norma. Major Briggs returns just to go into hiding. Jacoby clears Lana of witchcraft. Pete learns Andrew is alive. Thomas Eckert comes to town. Cooper shares traumatic backstory about Caroline and Wyndham Earl with Harry. And Leo becomes Earl's henchman as Earl surfaces in a cabin in the woods. So, a path is formed by laying one stone at a time. And what questions are we left with when looking at this episode through a uh, complete holistic look at Twin Peaks all the way up through the end of 2017? First question is, how do we see fear physically manifesting? How is this the perfect tableau for the villains to surface? And what happens to the darkness when help's at hand? But, you know, before we can start asking those questions, we're going to take a look behind the curtain into the production history. So the first thing you notice if you look at the dates on the scripts is this is the first episode in a while that was written quickly. You know, the first draft was on November 5th of 1990, and the final revision was only on November 8th. After four episodes in a row that basically took a month each to get through multiple rewrites. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, oh, okay, look at last episode, the episode 20 script. Uh, the one where Jean dies. Um, that was written. That be, that was first written on October 18th, but its final revision wouldn't even be done until nine days after this episode's on November 17th. Which means that um, you know the the tumult that had been 
uh, plaguing the production up through this point, uh, erasing the romance plot from the script and uh, adding in other things, uh, you know, finding the balance of how to do um, a brand new uh, uh, story arc in the middle of all that. Um, that is basically done as of this episode. So it took four episodes to straighten that out. And, um, you know, it's it's basically up to this one and next one to cap off all these little tiny story arcs that, um, you know, we won't see too much in the future. So this is the beginning and the end for a lot of things, though not for James. Now, trying to pin that to um, Scott Frost's other project in Twin Peaks, the book, Autobi The Autobiography of Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, um, he said that that was done before he wrote his Twin Peaks episodes. Which, um, you know, I, I don't buy that at all for the first one. Uh, episode 15 is, you know, that was like squarely before the Leland, um, the, the Leland arc had been finished. Um, and, you know, the book includes Dennis Bryson, who will become Denise Bryson by the time we see her in the show. And, um, you know, this character was only created a month earlier uh, when, when episode 17 started to need to be rewrote. And, you know, they brought in uh, Jean Renault and also Denise the next episode. So, um, yeah, episode 15 was long completed. But then this one was probably done actually after he finished the book. The book was probably finished. And then he immediately went into pre-planning for this script episode, um, you know, like one right after another, which is probably why he remembers that the book was finished before his episodes. Now, the director to this episode, Uli Edel, he's absolutely brand new to Twin Peaks at this point. He'd um, he'd re he'd recently directed the uh, the movie Last Exit to Brooklyn, which was pretty harsh from what I understand or, you know, pretty, uh, pretty dark and gritty. Um, <clears throat> and um, he'd also just recently moved to Los Angeles area and he looked up David Lynch when he got there because they have some they have some history together. Um Edel did the German trailer for Dune about 5 years before this. And um you know so he and Lynch actually knew each other well enough to have each other's phone numbers. And um you know right away uh, I guess Lynch liked the 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 trailer over there um uh, because right away um you know, Lynch hears this new guy come or his uh his previous collaborator in a way, um, you know, saying, you know, it's like, hey, getting on my feet, you heard anything? And uh he says, Hey, would you would you wanna work on Twin Peaks? So as far as the tone change between his movie and this one, he he ended up nailing the T V vibe pretty well. And um one thing that he did note is that um in you know, per reflections and a few other interviews that he's given uh, over the years, um, Lynch basically gave freedom to directors and, um, he appreciated having that complete freedom. And then, you know, he'd only hear from Lynch, at you know, every once in a while, you get a random reaction to the rough cuts as Lynch saw them. But then it's actually next episode's director who ends up, uh, being around way more often. Um, the, the strangest thing that happened to Edel when he was directing was, uh, Diane Keaton actually, uh, begged him to shadow him. Um, you know, like through, through most of the episode, um, because, you know, she said, you know, acting is completely different 
than directing. And, you know, she wanted to sit behind him because this is one of her first directing jobs and she absolutely wanted to get it right. So, um, you know, per, per Louis Edel, he says, so a few days in a shooting, she was visiting me on the set and sat quietly behind me in her chair, just watching me do my job. It was quite a feeling because, you know, of course, you know, he knew Diane Keaton as like one of these a-list actresses who works with all the best people in all the best movies and you know like everybody was just kind of starstruck by her but what that makes me think is that you know the, the fact that um you know keaton was there makes her anything goes kind of approach almost odder because a lot of the cast like uh you know russ tamblin and michael horse um thought that Edel was basically just pushy and bossy and uh, he did all these you know multiple takes uh kimmy robertson uh said this in essential wrapped in plastic that folks didn't like doing scenes 25 times in a row michael onkeen and kyle and michael horse got so mad they started cutting the cheese at around the 18th take and you know then she laughs uh so when i think of uli i think of farting and then she laughs again though you know then we get others like you know, Ian Buchanan and David Patrick Kelly, they they appreciated it. Um, they said that, um, or, or uh, David Patrick Kelly, who played Jerry Horn, he said, like David, Uli liked to keep it serious on sets so that the underlying reality of what we were doing came through. And you know, with the comedy tending to overwhelm things at that point in the script, I think uh, Kelly thought that you know that was pretty much welcome and important. Even though all that was going on, you know, the, the hard ass directing kind of thing or the, the yeah, uh, even even though all that was happening, um, Russ Tamblin wanted his scenes over, you know, as soon as humanly possible. But um, he also said that he and Richard Bamer never really got to sit down and talk about Bamer's West Side Story experiences before, uh, but they actually did during the Civil War scenes. When Edel's first uh, first assistant director told him who who Tamblin and Bamer were, he said he's uh, he's like it's Riff and Tony. But you know, thirty years later, which is why he didn't recognize them right away. And um, <clears throat> Edel wanted to, you know, he he was basically asking, "What can I give them to make their scene outstanding?" And um, you know, after that Henry F Henry the Fifth speech that uh, Bamer puts in here, he ends with this singing scene where they're singing Dixie together, which, um, you know, Robert Engels has claimed multiple times that he made that happen on the production side. But, you know, about using Dixie all by itself, I know it's basically the Confederacy's theme song, but in 1999 or in 1991, that wasn't actually in bad taste. Um, you know, it, at the time there's car horns that played, you know, like a, yeah, I mean, it's just like car horns were doing that on the streets some places. And you know, I assume the, the further south you went, probably the more that kind of thing happened. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's, um, you know, obviously the Ken Burns documentary that I talked about. I mean, that brought it even closer to the surface. And, you know, even my, my junior high school band concert at the time, um, you know, like within within the next year, uh, my my band was playing uh, the blue and the gray, where they played melodies of all the Union and um, and Confederate songs, um, and you know Dixie was included there. Um, it was just a classic song at the time that you didn't have to think too hard about back then. 
And, you know, because you didn't have to think too hard about it and we were already in the middle of a Civil War song, that's what we get for um, for Richard Boehmer and, and Russ Tamblin singing and dancing together over the next couple episodes. And speaking of Engels, per uh, Twin Peaks behind the scenes, we've got Engels copying a part of his job description to being the guy who gives the props people the newspaper headlines. And I assume that means he's the one who gave the headline Asian man killed. So, you know, again, more racism that was acceptable at the time because no one stopped to think about it. It just gave everybody a little bit of a chuckle. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it says more about 1991 than Engels, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I wanted to at least mention that, that, uh, absolutely crazy headline that wouldn't show up in media today. <clears throat> and, um, Speaking of Twin Peaks behind the scenes, um, that book itself was being finished around the time of this episode, which would be publishing about a month later in December of 1990. And uh, per the Red Room podcast, uh, the, the book's author, Mark Altman, he was finalizing the book around the time that he visited the set. And um, he actually saw Wyndham's cabin. So he might have been there around the same time as uh, Uli shooting and maybe even Diane Keaton being there. But, you know, he didn't say anything about that. So um, he was probably there right before this episode started filming uh, when it was just down to pre-production and the sets were built. Now, this episode, we have the vagrant again, where we, um, you know, the, the, the vagrant's name, Eric Powell. We'll find that out next episode. But um, that guy is being played by Craig McLaughlin, who is Kyle McLaughlin's brother. Um, per Kyle McLaughlin in Twin Peaks Unwrapped, he says um, that, that he's not sure how Craig got involved, but he was a PA on the set of Twin Peaks, uh, which is kind of the low man on the totem pole. But he took that in stride, and he's very capable. McLaughlin basically said he was doing the work for fun. Uh, he had some tasks like getting the actors back on set, including the tough to wrangle uh, Michael Ankeen, uh, who ran off the set very quickly afterward. But um, but um, but Kyle basically said that um, they thought it'd be fun to include Craig in the scene. And yeah, I mean, it's a lot like how that Scott Frost was included in uh, as one of the Icelanders in the party scene in season one, where um, where Leland wanted someone to dance with. Um, yeah, so I mean, they they just like to put in the staff as roles every once in a while. You know, it's like Jill Engels being Trudy the waitress. You know, that kind of thing. You know, it's not supposed to exactly make a difference in the story itself it's not supposed to imply hey this is cooper you know this is cooper's brother because it's not gonna be cooper's brother cooper's brother uh was emmett cooper and would be played by somebody else entirely if season three were going to be greenlit later now i mentioned windham earl's cabin but um as far as windham earl himself uh robert engels and kenneth welsh uh, in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, kind of put together the story. Uh, you know, Earl was a Moriarty, according to Engels. And um, and the Earl stuff started slow because they had already blown their budget. So, you know, that's why we end up getting um, scenes like Owl Cave being kind of lo-fi <laughs> at this point. As far as, you know, casting for Earl, 
Welsh was a good friend of of Engels back in the day, uh, you know, and and basically got Welsh in the door. Uh, they were part of the MFA program together in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota, and that's where Warren Frost taught, and that's where they all kind of met a uh, younger Mark Frost, all that kind of stuff. You know, the the uh, the Minnesota Mafia. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Ken Kenneth Welsh was part of that scene in a lot of ways, and. Um, you know, per Welsh, um, you know, Lynch wasn't at the casting meeting that time. And then Mark Frost was coming and going, working on Storyville, I'm assuming, down in New Orleans. And um, so that basically left it down to Robert Engels. And, um, you know, the, you know, Engels basically just said, you know, it's like, you've got this. And um, that's how he got the role. And um, I assume all this was happening during the filming of all the October episodes, episodes 17 through 20. And then, you know, we, of course, first see Ken Welsh on set uh, with this one. Now, after all that's put together, you know, what's the end result? Well, it aired on February 2nd of 1991 to 8.7 million viewers, which is down from two weeks earlier is 9.8. Um, they, they had a week off in between where they just weren't airing a new episode. Uh, that's kind of a normal thing that happens in the second half of the year for these TV shows. There's a lot more breaks. But anyway, that that extra break probably killed a little bit more momentum. So uh, instead of getting like, what, a half a million viewer loss from the episode before, um, now we're just over a million that got lost this time. Um, you know, was it possibly due to the Iraq war preempting it? Um, you know, it, it's tough to know because I wasn't actually uh, watching at that particular arc of the series. Um, but, you know, it's what what I do know is that this 8.7 million viewers is dangerously close to the series low of 7.4 million that will be happening later. Um <clears throat> You know, considering that the season started at 19.1 million viewers, you know, it's no wonder that we're two weeks away from the show being put on hiatus. Yeah, as far as my own personal experience with it, this is the second of the eight episodes that I didn't see until 1995. And, um, you know, I, I don't remember being offended by it at all when I when I finally did see it in 95. Um, you know, it didn't stick in my memory, but it didn't offend me so much that I remembered that either. So. Um, I would say it's a pretty solid episode of Twin Peaks that, you know, it's it's not, you know, it's not at the heights that it used to be, but it's not um, as bad as people are making it out to be either. OK, so we looked at the production history. We looked at its um, its end results as far as its first airing. And um, now we're going to look at what Lynch uh, what Lynch wanted to say about it in 1993 when he was making the Log Lady intros for the um for the bravo re-airings the log lady says the heart it is a physical organ we all know but how much more an emotional organ this we also know love like blood flows from the heart are blood and love related does a heart pump blood as it pumps love is love the blood of the universe Okay, so blood and love being equated, it absolutely makes sense. But why not put that in the episode where Cooper and Gordon are falling for Annie and Shelley, you know, with the love thing? Um, is it something to hold on to while people are losing to fear? Because this episode is totally fear-based. 
Um, yeah, I mean, is is this is this little reminder kind of an equivalent to "Don't sell your blood" that um, that Carl Rod talks to Crispin about in the middle of uh, of one you know one of the season three episodes where um, you know Crispin's basically or you know Criscal is uh, you know basically just trying to survive and doing everything he can to get some money. Um, <laughs> Is you know the mention of blood here kind of the way to stay focused on the important stuff, even though everybody in the show is going through something uh, fairly, uh, fairly traumatic and fearful, fear based. Um, <clears throat> you know, is it uh, you know don't give up on love while your heart races because of fear? And you know, as I as I said in uh, the twenty five YL article, Twin Peaks episode twenty one is stuck in dreams and nightmares. I said. You can push through this fear with compassion and time. Possibly you can do it in the length of a commercial break, like how Dwayne Milford goes from wanting to murder his brother's killer with a shotgun to wanting to adopt a child with her. And even if it's not the deepest love in the world, the slightest hint of compassion could make you second-guess the hurt you're inflicting on others as when Evelyn allows James to escape the police officers coming for him. And yeah, I'm definitely going to be looking into all of that. Um, but, you know, the very first thing we're going to do before that is hear some words from our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, well, welcome back. We are going to start looking at episode 21 with our main questions. Okay, so last week kind of had a theme where it was all about appetite and want and, you know, all the people kissing each other. And then we have this episode where pretty much fear is manifesting everywhere. Um, you know, uh, last week with the, with the wants, you know, it's like dreams can come true. But then this episode proves that so can nightmares. And you can't see the nightmares manifest any more blatantly than with Shelley's slasher film this episode. So last time, Shelley woke up to the power fluctuation, so she's already kind of dream adjacent with this whole thing, you know? It's like she's, uh, she's maybe, I mean, you know, I don't think she's exactly lucid dreaming, but the fact that, you know, she was already in a dream, waking up into this nightmare with Leo is, um, I mean, at least thematically relevant. And, um, <clears throat> You know, here we have Shelley's worst fears taking shape, just like, uh, you know, just like little Nikki seemed to manifest that tire almost falling in Dick or Evelyn seems to manifest the sound of the accident that she hears when Jeffrey drives off. I mean, in this case, you know, I, I'm not exactly saying that Shelley's manifesting it, you know, maybe the uh, maybe the electrical power fluctuations and uh, disruptions have amped up the power of the woods. I know I made that argument last week and I'm going to go with it. You know, the woods are so strong and powerful right now that they're waking up Leo and they are um, giving shape to whatever Shelly is most afraid of. And the first thing she sees here is that Leo is the shadow. You know, it's like he's just a silhouette and he disappears when he wants to. He throws 
Uh, you know, he throws a glass at her anytime he wants to, you know, it's like, it's all there just to scare her. You know, when we see a wide shot of the house to, to, you know, just to prove that her words can come out, but nobody's there to hear it. Um, you know, the, the house is lit in tones of red and who knows, maybe the house is being a haunted house here, you know, it jams and locks its own doors. Maybe, maybe Leo didn't do it. Maybe the house is just, you know, not letting anybody in or out. And, um, yeah, nobody hears her shouts and, uh, we see the wheelchair being moved and we know Leo's doing it, but you know, the, the wheelchair is being shown moving without him. So it's almost like it's got a mind of its own too, just like the house does, you know, we'll see Leo, um, making callbacks of the way he used to beat her with the soap and the sock. And, you know, he, he calls her bad girl and then tosses it toward her almost like he's playing with her at this point. And when she finally gets a knife from a cabinet, which she fumbles with for a very long time to the point where he could have easily done anything to her while she was looking, um, you know, she makes this uh, bravado style declaration, you know, it's like, I swear I'll kill you. And she like holds the knife like she's threatening Leo. But, you know, instead she lunges at the plastic wall, um, you know, cuts, uh, cuts some slits through it and then starts screaming help through the slits. Instead of attacking him, she just tries for safety. But, you know, this is when Leo pulls her back in and, um, you know, the knife slides away like in any horror movie, um, you know, and then they're inside the kitchen and we see Leo walking towards Shelly. And, um, you know, next thing we see is Bobby arriving from the Great Northern. Apparently the first order of Save Ben Horn is get some sleep. Um, but he's outside and he can't get through the locked doors either, just like Shelly can't get out. Um, you know, he could be the hero, but it's a horror movie. So he becomes a victim of Leo. And, um, you know, Leo eventually tries to, uh, throttle him through the window. You know, the arm comes straight through, um, as, as Bobby tries to get into a window. And the weirdest thing about that is that Leo is absolutely pinning down Shelly in the kitchen at the same time that his arm is coming out through kind of the, the front area with the window, uh, you know, keeping Bobby outside. So we've got, you know, Leo becoming that, um, that that serial killer guy from the horror movies where he's here and he's there at the same time, which is very Twin Peaks. But yeah, anyway, so Bobby tries to get in through the window. The arm comes out. And now that he he's seen Leo's arm try to attack him and uh, jump scare him, you know, Bobby now seems to be able to hear Shelly. So he's officially been moved to the fear of Leo frequency that Shelly is on. And now they can both be in the same place at the same time with one Leo. And, um, you know, like once we go back over to Leo and Shelly, he's like holding up the axe and saying, you know, goodbye, wife. Um, but, you know, this is when Bobby gets through the wall slits that Shelly made, uh, wrestles with Leo for the axe handle. Sure, Leo gets the upper hand and he pins Bobby's throat to the wall. But, um, <clears throat> You know, now we have Shelly, um, you know, fumbling around for a while for the knife. But, you know, she stabs Leo in the leg and Leo runs away. So essentially what we have here is Bobby and Shelly can't take on Leo alone. But together, when they work together, they fend him off. You know, this marries how Betty and Garland embrace in the darkness at the end of episode 19 when, you know, it's like, uh, you know, is everything all right? Not exactly, dear. And, um, you know, they have each other to kind of weather the storm. And it's the same thing with Ed and Norma being a united front before, um, before all the Hank darkness. 
So love for each other can save each other as it did literally here against Leo. And, um, you know, Bobby says, yeah, everything's okay, baby. He's gone. But, you know, of course, Leo immediately howls in the night somewhere out in the woods to prove Bobby sort of otherwise. Um, and then, you know, Bobby is just staring out in the hall while uh, while Shelly is like crying in his arms. And, um, you know, it's obviously not OK, but they have each other. So that's a really good start with Twin Peaks coding right now. And honestly, that's the only way to get through nightmares, it seems like. Now, we also have uh, Major Briggs hiding from the Air Force this episode. Um you know, it's like the civil the civil war music continues from a Ben Horn scene, but um, but the tone works really well because Briggs is obviously fresh from some kind of assault or drugging uh, when he comes into the sheriff's station. You know, it's like he stumbles over to Lucy's desk, and uh, you know, Lucy asks him, "Major Briggs," and then he says, "I need to see the sheriff," and then he passes out and slides forward down onto the floor, and. Um, you know, uh, Lucy then says, Major Briggs, you know, and sure, she checks her lipstick, but, you know, I, and the very next thing that we see is Lucy watching as Briggs, Harry, and Cooper simultaneously drink water cups. And in this scene, now that they've all, like, you know, freshened themselves up with the water, that seems to cleanse whatever haze that was coming over Briggs at the time. And, uh, you know, Briggs goes in talking about it. You know, he thought the Air Force was dedicated to the fight for the good. Um, but their questioning of his disappearance, as I quote him, exhibit suspicion and intolerance bordering, bordering on the paranoid. Their search for the White Lodge is not ideologically pure. So he believes right here that he was taken to the White Lodge. And, you know, then, of course, he proves that he can remember virtually nothing. But he has this intuitive sense, which conflates his um, his way of uh, processing this stuff with the way Cooper um, processes his things. You know, it's like they're, they're both aligned in the fact that they have a strong intuition and they use it. And they know how to trust it. But yeah, Major Briggs' intuitive sense here is that there's much trouble ahead, though he's unaware of the form that it will take. So he then says, I will return. And he puts on his hat and says, until that time, I will be in the shadows if you need me. So he's hiding in the shadows, and then we have need rather than want. Probably because it's a 45-minute TV show and you can only push storylines so far ahead each scene, the Major leaves right after this. And um, he gets absolutely no follow-up from the guys here. And, um, you know, instead of any kind of, like, further questioning or, like, you know, thoughts on, like, next steps or anything, um, you know, like, what the guys might want or need, in you know furthering answers to the brig yeah you know, the brig situation um we get nothing and then andy comes in with a can i show you something assuring there's no more follow-ups from them so um you know everything the brig said seems more important than that um than just letting him go you know it's like you would think that they would try to like protect him in some way um but, you know, that, like I said, that's weekly TV for you. So Briggs is trying to protect himself from the, uh, from the fear by kind of like hiding in the shadows and, um, you know, steering around the fear in a way. 
um, avoiding it. In this episode, even Cooper, who is, you know, tied to the intuition, he gives into his fear by the end of this episode, too. So at the beginning of the episode, he's absolutely tied into his intuition and he's locked in, you know, at the sheriff's station, um, you know, we see the chess piece being extracted uh, from from the vagrant's mouth. And here he says, no one saw a thing. You know, so the blackout and fire drew everyone from the building. And before we see anything else, Cooper says, you know, stab wound one inch below sternum, penetrating upward, uh, severing the aorta. And, you know, he he describes what happened to this vagrant, um, you know, point by point. He says a short time ago, a vagrant, our victim was befriended and offered a lift. He was driven to a location up beyond the ridge. The car will still be there. He was stabbed once. He was able to run a short distance before collapsing. Uh, Windermerle engineered the explosion that caused the power outage. He created the diversionary fire that drew everyone out of the station, brought the body through this window. Uh, Windermerle has been in this room. I can still feel his presence. So either he's manifesting what Windermerle did here into reality, kind of like how Shelley's uh, manifesting Leo into a serial killer mode. Or, um, or you know, like a slasher killer kind of guy. Or we have Cooper actually being really in touch with intuition here. But, you know, notice that later on, he won't be able to feel Earl's presence at all. Not even in next episode, as they're feet away from each other in the Great Northern. Um, you know, why, why not then? And why can't he do it here? Well, here, he's still just an, an investigator. You know, he's... He's burying his fear currently, and he's allowing the investigation side of him to just flow freely. You know, maybe Cooper's fear starts at the end of the scene when when Cooper defines Earl like this. Um, he says, Harry, we're not going to find any fingerprints in here. No mistakes, no slip ups. Everything has its own rationale. Precision, intelligence. Wyndham Earl is a genius, and he's taken his first pawn in a very sick game. You know, so he's defining the terms of Wyndham Earl. And um, it doesn't exactly go well because the next time we see them together, um, you know, Cooper's in Harry's office. You know, Harry's talking about the vagrant getting covered up and it's verified that, you know, no fibers, no prints. You were right. It was Earl. And sure, they're drinking coffee in this scene. And because we're drinking coffee, uh, we get to see that, you know, Denise says that the Bureau and the DEA cleared him of all charges. But the suspicion still stands, but the suspension still stands. And, um, you know, Cooper's waiting to hear from Gordon. Uh, you know, again, TV pushing a scene a little bit, but not all the way. And because Cooper's still a deputy rather than reinstated with the FBI, um, Harry says, in the meantime, you're still my deputy. If you want this case, it's yours. And then, of course, Cooper says, Harry, I want it. And, uh, you know, they clink mugs which kind of seals the deal with the coffee, I'm assuming. Um, you know, the coffee has them still on the right path. And, you know, as an investigator, not entirely focused on the fear. But then we have get we get Cooper staring at a chessboard later, and we hear the flute music that's associated with Earl. And, um, you know, then it's backstory time as Cooper fills Harry in about Earl. And it's about the end. And, you know, um, it's by the end of that scene that Cooper's face to face with his fears and because he's saying into Harry he's saying it aloud now which you know might not be the best idea if you don't want to be um enveloped by fear 
But yeah, so we get the backstory. We get Cooper and Wyndham. They played a game every day for three years. Earl brought or Earl thought that all life could be found in patterns and conflict on the board because I never beat him. I don't really understand how those two sentences go together, but they're there, and that's how Cooper associates things. I'm assuming he's talking about their conflict is something that he was never able to overcome. And then, you know, then he shifts over for real and says, Harry, I brought some baggage to town I haven't told you about. And, you know, we get that Earl was his first partner. Um, He says, everything I know about the law and the bureau, I owe to him. Um, And then, you know, we get to hear things like the Caroline case was four years ago, which in uh, Twin Peaks 1989 terms, that's 1985, which uh, in Kyle McLaughlin terms is a year after Dune and a year before Blue Velvet. And, you know, he goes on with the story. uh, We drew the assignment of protecting a material witness in a federal crime. She was very beautiful and gentlewoman. Uh, Her name was Carolyn. And, you know, he doesn't say not, you know, Caroline. He'll change the pronunciation as he goes. I don't think that's anything, you know, important here because it wasn't intentional. Um, And then he says, and I fell in love. This is when her face appears. You know, her hair's blowing in the wind and everything. And, you know, thankfully, this took place before Ben turned on the fan in his scene, or it would have seemed like fun comedy, (laughs) knowing that this imaginary dream woman probably just turned on the fan in her little flashback moment. But, you know, seriously, this this fade-in is just about how Andy thought his way into Nikki in the devil costume with the flames around the border. It's... It's a solidified image of something that you're thinking about, and it became a little bit more real to Andy, and then this became a little bit more real to Cooper here, too. You know, this moment when uh, when Cooper creates his visual you know, memory of Caroline is possibly a really good sign that this is when he switches over to the fear-based frequency, for sure. Uh, because, you know, even it's it's even manifesting in physical form for us, even though we know that, you know, like Harry wasn't seeing it. We know that it was just Cooper thinking. But, you know, it's one step closer to a manifestation. And it's not a manifestation of Caroline so much as it's a manifestation of his fears. But, yeah, anyway, um, you know, she fades away as Cooper resumes speaking. And he says, one night I failed in my vigilance an attack was made i wasn't ready i was wounded i lost my consciousness when i came to she was in my arms she she was dead she'd been stabbed which is about as much detail as we get in um my life my tapes that scott frost probably just finished writing so it was really easy for him to remember all those details and um i know it's going to be up to the show to elaborate on that if they wanted to uh, rather than seeing it blatantly in the book. But yeah, we're starting to see things kind of lining up between the book and the Cooper that we get in the show these days. But Harry connects um, the the wounds of Caroline to the wounds of the vagrant. And, um, you know, Cooper then says, yes, identical. Uh, the killer was never found. My wound healed. Wyndham Earl went mad, institutionalized until his recent escape. And, um, you know, Harry asks, why is he after you? And, um, you know, we get some survivor's guilt here from Cooper. And, um, you know, then he says, Harry, Caroline was Wyndham Earl's wife. And, you know, then he sits down and Harry says, so he blames you for her death. 
And um, you know, then Cooper leans forward and says, it's much worse than that. I think he killed her. And I think he committed the crime that she originally witnessed, which will not really be expanded upon in the upcoming My Life, My Tapes, you know, by the same author, because I don't think it was completely decided on uh, before then until maybe this episode that, you know, Earl really was the committer of that original crime. Um, but, you know, the book had already been finished. And uh, but then again, you know, back in the time. Earl must have had enough subterfuge over what he was doing uh, because you don't usually assign the perpetrator to guard the duty, uh, you know, to, to, to guard duty of the witness. You know, we, we have to assume that Caroline has a certain amount of amnesia or delusion about it, about, you know, knowing who did things. Um, otherwise, the organization that brought us the Blue Rose Task Force would have been all over why this wouldn't have been a good idea to assign Wyndham Earl to this case. But, you know, that's all sidestepped to uh, to switch to more explanation of Earl's attributes. So, you know, again, we've got Cooper defining Earl for the viewers and for Harry. And, um, you know, he's saying it aloud now, and this time he's scared of what happened earlier. You know, he says, Harry, Wyndham Earl's mind is like a diamond. It's cold and hard and brilliant. Which, you know, really matches with the Earl that we get at the end of this episode. And, you know, sure, it's immediately thrown out next episode with the Long Johns and, you know, the the other way that he plays the flute next episode. And, you know, this kind of Earl never really comes back until episode 28 with the blacked out teeth. You know, still, it's here now. And, um, you know, Cooper then puts on his hypothesis. I think he feigned the insanity that sent him away. But at some point, he lost the ability to, to distinguish between what's right and wrong. So, you know, we're, we're just putting it right out there that it's basically an empathy issue. You know, Earl seems to notice the difference, but then he'll choose to align with groups like the Dugpas specifically because he knows that they're more interested in power than empathy. And then to end this whole um, monologue by Cooper... Um, he just says, you don't know what he's capable of, Harry. You don't know. This, this is when Cooper, you know, his, his face fades into um, a tree line covered in fog, which is, you know, a transition shot, basically. And, um, you know, because now he's thinking from fear rather than as an investigator, he gets lost in the woods, kind of like he got lost in the curtains at the end of episode 14 in the roadhouse. when. Um, you know, when Maddie had already been killed and he doesn't even know it. So, yeah, this is kind of what's happening here, too. Cooper's Cooper's being lost. He's kind of like maybe feeling unsure of his next steps. So what does he do? He literally fades into the woods and foggy woods, no less, you know, with, with low visibility there, too. And with that kind of tableau in this episode, you know, with um. Even the way Shelley was, you know, it's like, how is how is this the perfect tableau for the villains to surface? So when people are giving in to their fears, they have to be scared of something. And um, it's perfect timing for someone to embody that fear and represent it physically, just like Bob did with the uh, the stuff between Laura and Leland. Um, but, you know, here. Uh, it's a little more physical and, you know, it's like the, uh, the, the metaphysical rules are a little bit more literal these days. Um, yeah. So we have the three particular adversaries present and, um, 
the first one I'll start with is Leo, since I've already talked about him a decent amount. Um, so yeah, you know, while while Eckert and Earl promise to be important villains to Twin Peaks' future, the monster of the week is the newly awakened Leo Johnson, who appears to be, you know, even more powerful than ever uh, now that he's broken through a coma, which is, you know, another way to uh, connect him with the metaphorical stuff in the woods. Because in a way, both he and Shelly woke up, and she woke up in a fear field, and um, he woke up kind of using that energy um, to, you know, feed from that fear that Shelly has. You know, there, there's a, in, in a way, there's a bit of a comparison to Cooper here. He woke up last episode after the electrical disruption and became the most himself ever here. Um, and it's kind of how Cooper Dougie disrupted the personal electricity in um, in part 15 by shoving a fork in an electric socket. And, you know, he went into a coma temporarily, but woke up even more himself than he'd been, uh, becoming, you know, the whole FBI. Uh, you know, I am the FBI. And uh, playing the Twin Peaks theme behind his every move. Um, you know, both, both Cooper in that time and, uh, Leo woke up completely refreshed and the embodiment of their core character traits, according to the show, you know, he's Shelly's worst nightmare, a silhouette by the door staring at Shelly. And, um, you know, that, that'll be interesting because, you know, since he starts out as a silhouette here, it's interesting that at the end of the episode, um, Wyndham Earl is the silhouette at first. Um, and you know leo is in full light um the the tables turn on leo before the end of the episode but it does kind of connect him and windham visually too yeah never noticed that before this watch through but it's uh it's kind of neat that they're like part of the same in a way uh but you know here at the beginning of the episode he's a slasher movie villain who disappears uh completely when shelly takes his eyes off him uh and you know did did he lock jam the doors did he uh you know throw, throwing a glass at her all these things you know he cues up the wheelchair to be a perfect takedown for shelly um you know the soap and the sock uh he he basically is simultaneously in the kitchen with an axe uh you know tipping over the table to intimidate shelly into staying in place while he's pushing his arm through the outside window to try to throttle bobby uh, you know, the two locations are one's thing. And, you know, the the threat is, you know, goodbye wife. But, you know, that's when Bobby and Shelly kind of stop him in tandem. And, you know, he's howling like an animal after that. But, you know, the next time we see him after that, the camera is spinning slowly in a circle, looking up at the trees. But then we see that it's Leo looking up in the same way. So now, now that he's not in his perfect role, he's disoriented. And, you know, then an owl hazes him, like M said on Sparkwood in 21. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got owls uh, keeping track of Earl's perimeter here because of, uh, you know, possibly what he's trading in with the with the spookiness of the woods uh, or because they already have a stake in, of, of control in Earl, as we'll see kind of, you know, the tables get turned at the end of episode 29. But anyway, we see Leo seeing the cabin and, you know, apparently he hears the flute, too, at the time. And um, 
when he walks in, he says bad girl as he opens the door. So, you know, his wires still seem crossed. And I kind of feel like, was this his way of expressing that someone should have locked the door and blaming someone else for it? Um, either way, you know, he's he's out of his element now that Shelly's not there to be, you know, the, uh, you know, to be boogeyman. And then, you know, we've got Leo stepping into the door frame. And he sees the hand put down a flute and pick up a gun. And, um, you know, Leo backs off, but the voice says, no, no, come in. It's all right. I'm a friend. And then, you know, the hand puts down a gun by the chessboard. Uh, the silhouetted face says, come in. And from here, he listens to Earl, gives his name and everything to him. Um, you know, all his power is now gone by the end of the episode. You know, maybe... Maybe now he's giving in to his own fears that, you know, he also has. But, you know, he he has the more scared Shelly around him to give him the power. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go into what what gives his power, you know, like. How, you know, who he gives his power over to later. But um, I'm going to start with the big bad introduced alongside Earl first. And uh, that'll be Thomas Eckert. And Eckert's a tricky big bad because, you know, he he's appearing as the big bad. You know, like we we've got the uh, the the fact that he's being ensnared, and you know we learn that right before we see him too. You know, it's like, uh, you know, after after we see three tr uh, totem poles with dramatic classical piano uh, transitioning into the Blue Pine Lodge. Um, you know, that, that scene starts in the best way possible to verify that Josie's already left uh, left the building to do the shopping. And, you know, it's Pete going, you know, it's like, we forgot the hot dogs. We forgot the weenies. And, you know, Catherine chooses then to show Pete that Andrew's alive, starting with, I want to show you something, which ends up echoing Andy's, can I show you something that, you know, really leads to Lana. So Catherine starts it out by saying, have you asked yourself how I really survived after the fire? And, you know, then, um, you know, she opens the doors, reveals Andrew there, and Pete is shocked. You know, he's like, I saw the boat. Uh, but, you know, it, it sounds like here's what happened. Catherine had Andrew's help the whole time to apparently set up Tojimura, uh, to to set up surviving the fire, everything all while hiding Andrew away, all to lure in Eckert. Um, you know, they, they didn't keep Andrew a secret from Pete because he hadn't been a character on the show yet to cast or anything, nothing like that. Um, it was because Pete didn't need to know. Uh, so, you know, the, this really stretches incredulity. But, um, you know, what, it, at the end of the day, this is all Millplot stuff. And Millplot stuff has always been extremely convoluted. So this is actually still consistent with all of that stuff. If you can, if you can, um, think about it a little, a little more than, um, you know, it deserves, honestly. Uh, but, uh, you know, then we, we get more information about why does Eckert hate Andrew and, you know, why, um, you know, why Eckert is also a villain. Um, so, um, Andrew New Lumber, Thomas New Hong Kong. Uh, they made money, they had fun. Um, you know, like, uh, <laughs> 
what what do we got uh Andrew says, but I got the better of him in a piece of business that he and he tried to stab me in the back. So a piece of business is Josie. You know, she's not a human being the way that he brings her up in this. It's just business. So Josie's identity is uh, becoming less and less um, human, according to these people, as as we hear them speak about her. Um, Pete asks, you know, does Josie still work for record? And, um, uh, they say that's what they're, they're, that's what they're going to find out because he'll come for her like a rat to cheese. So, you know, it's an entrapment. Yeah, it's an entrapment for Eckert, but it's also there to test Josie's allegiances to see how to exact their revenge over her even more too. So this is a double jeopardy for Josie. Uh, since even Truman is having Cooper look into the death of Jonathan Kunigai, who Josie got away from, but did she kill him? So, you know, alongside seeing Harry investigating, you know, it's like, does Eckert come for her? Well, right after this scene, the next thing we see is Jones ringing a bell, uh, checking in Thomas Eckert at, um, at the Great Northern. So... Are we supposed to think that this Eckert can outmaneuver Catherine and Andrew, that they are the ones out of their league? Um, you know, the fact that they lured him successfully to me says that they know how to handle this guy, no matter how much fire he has in his I wear my sunglasses at night. Um, you know, re- regardless, his smirk does make him look like he's going to be a fun villain, at least. And, you know, the drama horns that come with him imply that he could be a force after all. You know, it's, I, I think what we're supposed to think is, oh, Catherine and Andrew, what did you bring to that town? And, um, you know, even... But, but what ends up happening is, you know, they're exactly right every step of the way with this guy. But for the real villain in the piece, uh, the real big bad of the season, we've got Wyndham Earl. And, um, you know, Earl's been tangentially mentioned exactly as often as Eckert uh, recently and in similar story placement ways, to, uh, you know, though uh, though his is not associated with, you know, mill plot characters. He's associated with the Cooper A plot. So, you know, he should feel more important than Eckert. Um, the, the parallels are kind of like those handful of season one episodes where Audrey and Hank were paralleling each other uh, with with the way they navigated through their worlds you know it's like we had the one on the positive frequency and the one on the negative frequency doing the same thing and um you know here we've got you know the Millplot folks and the cooper folks doing the same kind of thing as they uh villain their way into the series um but you know unlike eckard being lured here to town by a trap um it's earl who's installing his track as he, uh, his trap as he arrives and you know essentially he brought the fear with him uh, instigating those explosions that that uh, breakthrough point where it is as bad as people feared and people like leo are waking up you know this is what earl brings with him so you know the episode begins with us learning what earl did to the vagrant you know he befriended him offered him a lift abandoned the car stabbed the vagrant just like he stabbed caroline one inch below the sternum penetrating upwards severing the or the aorta once uh you know then he let the vagrant run and collapse uh taped a chest piece in the guy's mouth and then he engineered the explosion that caused the power outage setting 
diversionary fire that drew everyone out of the situation, brought the body in through the window, and let rigor mortis set in from the finger to show Cooper in the most dramatic way possible what his next move is, along with proving that he took the first pawn in his game, all while leaving no fingerprints, no trace, besides modus operandi. So yeah, we learn he's into planning ahead and theatrics and, you know, that he has no empathy during any of it. Uh, You know, this matches up with Cooper saying, I think he's feigned the insanity that sent him away, but at some point he lost the ability to distinguish between what's right and wrong. And, you know, then we learn what he did to Cooper and Caroline, which was after teaching Cooper everything that he knew about the law and the bureau, he committed a crime that Caroline was witness to, took her protection duty in real life. I wouldn't think that would be a sign to people, you know, less emotionally involved with the witness. But, uh, you know, then he killed her with the same injuries as the vagrant and stabbed Cooper when those two fell in love. We hear that Wyndham Earl's mind is like a diamond, it's cold and hard and brilliant, and it appears to be true of the Earl that we get in this episode. Though, you know, it is it is thrown out as early as next episode with the long johns and the flute, da-da-da. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that does actually mirror Cooper's first day in town, too. Remember when he's uh, this sarcastic noir guy and, you know, like he's, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you didn't love her anyway, to, to Bobby? Um and, you know, smiling while he's uh, while he's like ghoulishly going after Laura's fingernails in the morgue. You know, it's like that Cooper um, was way less empathetic to the town than he was after he woke up the next day in Great Northern in episode one. You know, it's like, is Cooper mostly himself before he came to town, but then the dreaming influenced him and changed him? Um does does Earl do the same thing? You know, is this his first night in town where we see him be all, you know, um, super, you know, cold calculating villain, but then one night in Twin Peaks and, uh, you know, he gets a little wacky. Uh, it may not be intentional, but um, it actually matches up pretty well with the proximity to portals and that it takes time to tune to the portal frequencies from Twin Peaks. Um, you know, that that fog that Tamara Preston mentions at the end of Final Dossier that appears to clear the further away she gets from it. So in that way, I'm a little bit more um, more forgiving for the tone change to the uh, to the uh, the Batman 66 Joker that we'll get for the rest of the series up through episode 28. You know, as, as far as what we actually see for the first time here, you know, he, he starts out, like I said, nothing but a silhouette. Um, you know, those hands are lit. Um, so he's, he's hands that, you know, move things around, you know, the puppet master in a way. Um, <clears throat> and Kenneth Welsh about Uli Edel's directing in this episode, um, uh, uh, Welsh said he was very interested in different and precise camera angles. Uh, we would go over it and over it until he got exactly what he wanted. And, um, you know, I, I think that that whole thing where his hands come out first and then eventually we see his uh, silhouetted face before we finally see him at the very end was all of that. And um, I think it worked out really nicely. I love what Uli Edel did with uh, with the introduction of of Wyndham Earl. But, yeah, you know, he, he wanted um, he wanted Leo to be completely lit and for Earl to come out of the shadows uh, bit by bit. And okay, so yeah, owls keep track of Earl's perimeter because, you know, 
because of what he's trading in or that they already have kind of control over him. But, um, you know, Earl basically controls Leo from running, you know, it's like, no, come in. I'm a friend. Um, you know, then he puts the gun down by the chessboard and, you know, invites Leo in, uh, you know, he assures Leo, you know, like, uh, looks like you've had a very hard night. And, you know, this is when the, uh, the silhouette of the body and the hands, you know, basically invite him to sit you know it's like come sit i will help you uh what's your name uh so you know he he offers help except you know he's just not saying what kind of help um and you know anybody getting stabbed in the leg and you know lost in the woods uh would probably be okay with accepting any kind of help that's offered uh whether it's only helpful to earl or not um and then, you know, he gives, Leo gives Earl his name here. And this is where the power transfer is sealed, probably. Uh, but, uh, you know, we got Earl running with this. You know, it's like Leo. And, you know, this is where we get uh, the 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 silhouetted Earl face, you know, slightly lit at the edges now. And, you know, this is when he sits at the chess table and becomes completely visible. And he says, well, Leo, you can call me Wyndham. Wyndham Earl. And, you know, he's got the smirky smile at the end. And, uh, you know, it's like I, I kind of feel like at this point, Earl knows that he's been delivered a henchman, possibly by the owls, by the woods, by fate. Uh, you know, did he manifest it? Uh, tough to know. But, um, you know, at this point, this is when the window blows open, the candles go out, the chessboard is in in the windy dark at the very end of this episode. Um you know, did did the same power that sent the owls send the wind? Uh, you know, uh, he um, Earl trades in the scary territory, and you know he seems to be in control of all of it. You know, based on seeing his hands first, it feels like you know it's like the the wind put out the the candle, um, almost because Earl wanted that to happen. You know, he wanted the light to go out. But yeah, so that's how we get our main villain to town. Um, but you know, there's, there's this other side of things too. And it's like, what happens, you know, in, in this episode that's so fear influenced, um, you know, my, my last big question for this episode is what happens to the darkness when helps at hand? And I'm not talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, I will help you that Earl says to Leo, um, you know, it kind of, what kind of makes me laugh is that, Earl getting help from Leo may be something that Earl knows that he needs. And, you know, the plans only come together when he has someone to help him grow the plans. But, you know, just like it works in the episode 29 script, you know, the helpers have to do it without coercion. And, um, you know, it's like all, all the help he's getting from Leo is, um, you know, I mean, it's coerced. You know, even though, even though Leo trades in the bad stuff anyway, it's like, you know, he's still doesn't exactly want to do this for Earl per se. He's just doing it because of the shock collar probably. But you know what, what I'm talking about here that Earl is trying to invert for his own means is, you know, how Bobby and Shelly can't stop Leo alone, but you know, together they fend him off. The major went to the sheriff's station to alert the others of his situation, essentially making a call to be ready for help. It's a call for help because Briggs knows that he can't fight it alone. Uh, you know, whatever kind of darkness he's up against all the time with the uh, with the blue book stuff. 
you know, there, there's there's similar ways this whole episode to go beyond the negative frequencies. And, uh, you know, when someone is genuinely offered help, um, you can rise through the dark and, you know, find some light. And, you know, I'll, I'll count Doc Hayward among them right now uh, because he's kind of all over this episode in a way. Um, OK, so the first thing is with Andy and Dick, you know, they believe the worst about Nikki. And um, Andy, after you know, he messes with a rubber glove, it snaps off and like hits it gets stuck to Lucy's glass uh, over by her desk. You know, this is what brings um, Andy over to Lucy and he brings her up to date on his fears his and Dick's fears that little Nicky murdered his parents. And, you know, Lucy's just like, he's nine years old. And, <laughs> and Andy's only serious response to that is, we think he was six at the time of the crime. So, you know, Lucy goes, you know, if you think that, the two of you aren't fit to be fathers to a chimp. And, you know, then she goes to get to the bottom of this right away. And, you know, she leaves her desk and slams the door. You know, so instead of Lucy being told by Andy, um, you know, this probably should have been triggered by Andy and Dick getting caught at the door at home for boys, because, you know, we could have easily had that scene, um, you know, instead of having the one between Andy and Lucy here, you know, it's like Doc's anger level could have been uh, scoldy because of that, you know, um, you know home invasion of the business you know but but whatever i mean you know i'll, I'll take it this way too you know the fact that the storyline ends is a good it, it's a positive thing <laughs> and uh you know so um you know and and again this way andy doesn't have to be on suspension <laughs> when he's getting scolded by doc hayward i guess um but you know anyway the next time this comes up you know lucy brings in dick and andy into a conference room with Doc Hayward, who shares Nikki's actual background. And, you know, we get the whole thing where she's an immigrant chambermaid at the Great Northern. The child was born from rape, which, you know, really sucks as a trope. And I hate to see it. And um, this isn't the last time we're going to see it in Twin Peaks. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, he he's basically added to the list of Richard Horn, you know, sons without fathers and rape as a plot point. Oh, boy. Um, but yeah, so the father escaped to Canada, which, you know, the the bad guys always go, you know, across the border. And, um, you know, he's he's possibly in with the Renaults this way. Uh, but, you know, she died in childbirth. So then we get a young couple adopted him. But, you know, he died in a fiery car crash after he pulled them from the car, etc. So, uh, you know, fire taking people too early, just like Margaret's husband. Um, so, yeah, you know, that would stunt. Nikki's emotional growth, hence, you know, his 10 year old self being portrayed like a kindergartner or younger most of the time. You know, it's a, you know, funny boom boom, you know, well, just the way people talk to him and the way he talks to people. You know, it's like, sure, you know, it's, it's technically justifiable with all this. And, you know, it does work with as more fodder that, you know, he could be a devil and, you know, go the way of Leland or Richard Horn. You know, all the Twin Peaks trappings are actually in the details of this. But, you know, the story ends in comedy for Nikki because, you know, ba based in empathy, actually, um, it's, it's empathy, you know, even though <laughs> even though nobody ever actually tries to take care of him from this point forward for like what the next eight episodes, you know, we, we get Andy and Dick crying like crazy. Uh, and, you know, they feel for Nikki as a child rather than as an active killer that they're making him out to be, you know, it's supposed to make us laugh, but. 
you know, once there's empathy, this story is now love based rather than fear based. And, you know, is thankfully completely finished because it doesn't, you know, Nikki can't be a boogeyman anymore when his story doesn't have power. It's kind of like how, uh, you know, Earl isn't scared of Leo at all. And, you know, there goes there goes Leo, the um, the terrifying. And Doc Hayward also contributes his help with Ed and Norma and Nadine's storyline. While the law enforcement are investigating the vagrant, we've got Hawk entering to say that, you know, Hank missed the buy, claims he got hit by a bus. But, you know, Harry and Cooper smile because they seem to already know that Nadine Hurley was the cause of Hank's current state, which says to me that Ed must have told them. And, you know, now he's telling Doc more about Nadine at the double R. And, um, you know, it, it's really it's really odd because she's a child to them. You know, the, the topic is she wants to start dating boys. And, you know, uh, Doc Hayward asks, you know, is she sexually active? And, you know, yeah, with Ed, um, he, he says he wakes up every day feeling like he got hit by a, a timber truck, you know. And, um, you know, Doc's just saying, you know, it's, ah, it's the extra adrenaline. So she's a child of them, but you're also sleeping with her. You know, it's like I, I understand that, um, you know, she is actually Ed's wife and they're holding these two constants at the same time, both to be true. I get that. But um, it ends up getting like the weird incest vibes yet again in a more complicated way than usual because this is supposed to be a comedy plot. Um, it it doesn't age well. Um, but, you know, it's like Ed's not concerned about the complicated nature of her being with multiple people while delusional or him being with multiple people. He just thinks, you know, she's likely to kill a poor kid. So, you know, Doc Hayward, for some reason, he somehow shares in this general disregard. And, um, you know, his his only advice is be patient and tell her to be home by 9 p.m. on school nights. You know, Norma also shares the general disregard of, like, facts of this story. Uh, you know, she delivers food, all smiles, and Doc Hayward seems to know about them. And, um, you know, Hayward and Ned shift the conversation over to Donna taking the van to find James. And, um, you know, they talk about it a little bit. And, um, you know, Doc says, you know, not easy being a parent. And Ed says, boy, I'll say to, you know, seal the deal that the, the, uh, the woman that Ed is sleeping with is also in his care. But, you know, like I said, holding two contrasting ideas at once is a hallmark of Twin Peaks. And it's kind of like how, uh, Kind of like how Janie E sleeps with Cooper Dougie. You know, Ed is married to Nadine, and she is almost one hundred percent the initiator with Ed too. So, you know, it's not it, it's not like he's seeking it out exactly. He's just kind of rolling with Nadine's delusion, I would think. Um, so yeah, complicated stuff. Dodging around that complication, you know, Doc leaves, and now or, now Norma sits with Ed, and you know the, they find out that Hank's in a hospital due to a redwood named Nadine, um, and then Harry called Norma, basically saying that he's arresting Hank for parole violation. But you know, we're just supposed to see that Nadine wants to date other people, and Hank is going to prison so that Ed and Norma can finally be together in peace. That's what that whole scene was setting up. Uh, and, you know, the, the hook rug dance music that played um, with Louise Dombrowski in the flashlight, um, you know, that that music is playing here. So it's like this nostalgic, happy sound. Um, you know, it's like Ed and Norma 
are able to kind of look away from their present situations that seem to be working themselves out, quote unquote, um, to kind of go back to a more innocent, a more innocent nostalgia within themselves, um, you know, where they didn't have spouses yet now that their spouses are being taken out of the equation. You know, as as far as Norma is concerned, her path is actually pretty neat because since episode 17, you know, she's following this path uh, to establish her boundaries and her intentions. And, you know, she says, I think it's time to correct a few of the mistakes I made. You know, it's pretty neat because she's, she's being accountable for herself. Um, she's taking steps to change her life in a way. So, you know, she's, she's kind of on a golden shovels path at the moment, which is um, pretty cool for Norma in a way. Um, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that as we go, but it, it's, it's, um, it's noteworthy. Um, but yeah, anyway, you know, she says about, you know, correct a few mistakes that I made. And then he says, you know, he, he starts talking about steaks and wine. And, um, you know, she asks if, uh, if he knows what he's saying and, you know, that people will find out. And then Ed just says, let him. <laughs> and they both have these giant smiles on their faces. And, um, you know, that, that's where their story arc, uh, got the can kick to and uh it's pretty nice for them so you know i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of willing to uh you know and being an original uh, tv viewer at the time you know it's like i'm i'm willing to look past the more complicated stuff and uh you know feel good for norma's sake at least heading in a different direction with this um with this concept of people helping i'm going to look into the james and evelyn storyline so I wanted to put this this section up where it's people's darkest fears come to life, but um, James is less scared than he is ensnared. the The first time we see the storyline this episode, we get a line about uh, we we see this line of toy cars on a mantle, and then real cars in a garage. Um, you know, possessions, toys. You know, it's like I I get the uh, I think I get the metaphor here, and um. You know, James is under one of the real car's hoods. And then we get Jeffrey Marsh actually showing up in this scene in a red and black windbreaker. So red and black, you know, uh, large spacey color scheme. I get it. Um, yeah. So um, he actually chit chats with James. You know, he's, he's envious. He's he's um, he's envious of James's no itinerary, no deadline, time on the road stuff. You know, and then he says, I wish I was going with you. And, um, you know, he seems peaceful enough here that you could forget that we heard him and Evelyn fighting during that one storm a few episodes ago where uh, Jeffrey absolutely was uh, sounding like a bad guy, even when Malcolm was nowhere near them. But, you know, while we might miss that, James doesn't forget it. And, you know, he also doesn't shake uh, Jeffrey's hand with um, with the grease all over his. And. um you know, Evelyn's just silent and looming over this whole this whole scene. You know, Jeffrey basically says after he takes the car for a spin, maybe they can talk shop. You know, it seems like we have a mutual love. Cars. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a little heavy handed on um possible metaphor or um yeah, but but you know, um you know, we're we're supposed to think, uh oh, James almost got caught. And, um, you know, James says, you know, it's like, ah, he'll be gone too soon for that. You know, he's feeling guilty, obviously. But Evelyn, 
uh, tries to assuage that guilt and uh, control him into staying by saying, of course he'll stay. There's plenty of things I can find for him to do. So James leaves the scene, then Jeffrey leaves in the car, and Evelyn could be manifesting like little Nikki and Shelly about, um, you know, it, it, except this this time it's not exactly his her worst fears in play. It's her wish fulfillment that is possibly manifesting here. She watches that car leave the driveway, and we immediately see her smirking as she imagines the sound of squealing tires and an accident. What I think of here is that it's very similar to how, um, re- remember that really weird um, piped-in audience uh, cheering sound after Nadine threw the teenager at the cheer tryouts? And, you know, at the end, you know, it's like everybody's just like, because, you know, it sounded like a real crowd. But, you know, I, I think in high school that that crowd wouldn't exactly be real. So that's kind of how Nadine felt like it should be. And um, this is how Evelyn felt it should be, because she's trying to kind of control her situation at the moment. But anyway, next time we see the storyline, there's basketball on the radio and uh, James is in the shower getting ready to leave when Evelyn comes in. And, you know, she says, you were good with Jeffrey. And he says, it didn't feel that good. (laughs) So she rubs his arms from behind and she says, I can change that. Uh, He he turns her face to face and she forces kisses on him. And um, then he fends it off with, it's wrong. And, uh, you know, that, that reminds me every time of this Hanna-Barbera cartoon called Two Stupid Dogs. It was one of the um, one of the originals before stuff like Powerpuff Girls and Johnny Bravo. And, um, you know, there, there's this uh, there's this big guy, you know, he's he's kind of uh, walking up to a little bird who's like tweeting and, you know, singing a little bird song. And he's like, well, isn't that cute? But it's wrong. So, you know, it's like the delivery is very similar to how James does it here. And um, yeah, it, it just it just strikes me as cartoony uh, for multiple reasons at this point. Um, but anyway, um, so so uh, Evelyn, the kissing didn't work on him. Uh, she tries to appease to his chivalry, you know, to, to appeal to his chivalry um, with, uh, you know, please don't leave me alone with him. Uh, but, you know, he goes to check on his bike anyway and leaves her alone in the room. <clears throat> and, you know, we get a tangent to this story arc where uh, Ed and Will talk about why Donna took the van to, see, uh, to find James. And then eventually we see her walk into Hideout Wally's the same way James did. And also sees Evelyn there, mirroring exactly how both James and Donna enter this weird territory that, you know, uh, behaves a lot like it's Lodge influenced. And I wouldn't be surprised if Wally is uh, Wally's, you know, like you could you could twist this around and make Wally's the uh, the red room for these two folks uh, as they walk a little bit closer into the dark areas of the lodge, basically. And, um, you know, this is like a metaphorical version of that in a way. Um, but anyway, Donna orders coffee there, which is good for her. And, uh, you know, she says she's looking for a biker named James and Evelyn hears this and says, you look like someone in need of help, which is essentially what she says to James. If I remember right, you know, she reads pray 
And, you know, then she bites down on a sucker she's sucking on. And, you know, Donna takes this as a call and vamps out. Uh, she starts smoking. And, um, you know, she, uh, Donna finds out from Evelyn that James did work on a car for Evelyn. Uh, but then yeah, Evelyn twists it and, you know, poses it to Donna. Are you what he's running away from? So, you know, this is a power move. And, um, you know, Evelyn then lies and says James left yesterday on his bike to the ocean or Mexico. Uh, you know, basically tells Donna to go home. And then she says, coffee's on me and leaves. Um, but, you know, Donna just had coffee and just you was playing for her in the background of, you know, the soundtrack. And, um, you know, does does Donna use that coffee moment to uh, begin sleuthing it up? And, you know, she knows something's up. Uh, you know, the, 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 the taste of intuition, <laughs> uh, but you know, anyway, it seems to sure go that way by the end of the episode. That little moment ends with us watching where James actually is at, at the Marsh house. And, you know, he's standing next to his bike and he does this weird slide on that pillar, like, so that he's seated by the end of it and he's noticeably not leaving. And so, you know, all that proves to me is that he packs almost as slowly as John Justice Wheeler. Or, you know, is it possibly also a frequency sluggishness, um, you know, because it's it kind of behaves like uh, like it's really close to the woods out there. Um, but anyway, yeah, yet later um, we get another scene of James still packing. Seems like it's probably nighttime by now. And um, Evelyn goes in and tries again to get him to stay, even though it's wrong. Um, and then she says, I love you. I never said it before to anyone in my life, which, uh-huh, of course. Yeah, she's married. She never said it to anybody, not even Jeffrey. Uh-huh. Okay, but anyway, the police sirens kick in there. And um, then she says, there's been an accident. Jeffrey's dead. And then, you know, James figures it out. It's like, his car? You set me up. And, you know, then she says it was Malcolm's idea. And, you know, the sirens and the immediacy thereof, it all seems to have changed Evelyn's tone at this point. And, um, you know, it's like that moment where she says, you know, I love you. I never said it to anybody. Um, does that mean she actually does love James enough to, like, switch over to a love slash empathy kind of mindset? And, um, you know, this, this kind of changes Evelyn's tune. And, you know, this is where she actually becomes a helper. You know, she actually makes an attempt to help James escape the trouble. And she says, hurry, James, go find that young girl who loves you. And, you know, I mean, technically, Dodonna's love for him, you know, looking for him. Um, and, you know, seeing a, a younger vamp version of herself, maybe, uh, you know, did that help change uh, her tune on James? You know, knowing that he's part of a different world and um, she kind of wants him to be part of it still. But anyway, Evelyn goes to meet the cops out front that are pulling up as James conspicuously sneaks away. And, you know, Donna's there in the yard with him. So she did follow Evelyn to the house. And, um, you know, rather than believing Evelyn, you know, it's like she she knew where the bullshit was and where it wasn't. And um, so Donna and James head off camera together, able to push through this darkness together. But um you know, while this seems like a good way to get them out of the storyline, um, you know, apparently 
they can't push through the storyline enough because it's back anyway next episode and you know then it's finally put to bed but this seems like a really good exit point for the whole storyline and you know they could they could conveniently you know if, if they can if they can conveniently ignore how um dick and andy got out of that jam at the the doris orphanage then i think that they could conveniently like come up with a paragraph or two next episode to get them out of the marshlands but you know whatever um uh, <laughs> you know, can't be too picky about a storyline that already got wrapped up you know <laughs> so many years ago but back to more overt kind of helping we've got you know just just like doc hayward was in two uh two scenes that he showed up in um there's two jacoby scenes this episode that um you know he's present for and the first one we get is ben horn who is in the great northern in a power failure but you know we get we get bobby and audrey in that scene where you know they're surrounded by candles and it's not for romance it's because the power's out Audrey finally explains what kind of business that she and Bobby are in, I think. Um, you know, she says, listen carefully, Bobby Briggs. This is what we're going to do. If there's one thing I learned from my father before he flipped his wigs, it's that a business relationship is like a sacred pact, equaled, only, or equaled by only closest of relationships where nothing is held back. So, you know, business relationships, sacred pact, it relies on trust, which is adjacent to meaning that you can't let your fears win out you know it's like you have to trust this person regardless of what you might be worried about but then her appeal moves over to money and she says you know do you want to get rich bobby and you know of course he gets face to face with her then and says immediately and um you know they do have a good dynamic even if it's not necessarily a romantic one um but anyway uh audrey says well i may be able to help and you know she doesn't promise for sure here she just says um you know let's pretend this ice cube is my father our job now is to help my father come back from uh from limbo land before he melts away and leaves us with a handful of nothing and then she says after that you know from now on bobby i'm the one you suck up to and you know bobby you you could tell here that Bobby learned business from Laura and, you know, he sucked up to her to stay in her orbit. And, um, you know, whenever he didn't suck up to her and do exactly what she needed, you know, that's when she pushed him away. So, you know, I, I think that's why he connects things to Shelly here is because, you know, that's the the way he sees relationships is how Laura trained him to see them. You know, Audrey, I think, can tell this about him. And, you know, like she she spots the same thing that um that uh, Ben Horn did. You know, it's like admiration is for dairy cows. You know, Audrey sees a cow, too, here that she can, you know, milk for her, uh, you know, needs. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, Wyndham Earl isn't the only one who gets a henchman in this episode. I think Audrey thinks she just got one with Bobby, just like her father figured out with Bobby a couple episodes ago. And next day in Ben's office, after a full night's sleep, apparently, we get, um, you know, we get the drums, we get the, the trumpet and flute in the soundtrack, and then a train and a whistle, which we actually see. You know, the reality of this Civil War um, landscape gets more and more realized and more established every single episode uh, to the point that it looks like a stage production next episode. It's, it's really neat how gradual that happens and how more solidified and real it gets just like i uh just like i kind of see the metaphorical stuff in this show too it's it's neat when it's like physically represented that way too 
But anyway, Audrey enters with Jerry, and, you know, he's marching on Washington. We think he's getting close, she tells him. In a rare moment of Jerry actually recognizing what's in front of him, Jerry is disbelieving. You know, he says, Ben? And, you know, this is when we find out Jacoby's there, you know, taking notes. And he says he prefers general. So Jerry eventually goes with it and says, general? And, you know, this Ben notices. And, you know, he's got a sly expression on his face. And he says, Jeb. And um, Audrey catches uh, Jerry up and says, he thinks you're General Jeb Stewart. And Jacoby says, oh, you're you're in the cavalry. And <laughs> so they're like going right around with uh, with Ben's LARPing situation, like, you know, they're fully invested in it. So Ben rallies the troops and, you know, by dawn, they'll be at Washington. By midday, it will fall. Um, only God can stop us now. And God's pretty much a southerner. Uh, that's, that's the gist of what we get out of what Ben says. And, uh, you know, Jacoby inserts a happy hallelujah at the end, you know, was it supposed to reference, um, or no, no, it won't reference the, uh, the waiter. Maybe, maybe Lynch liked the sound of this in, uh, in the back of his mind. And that's why he got, um, the, the waiter to say it in episode 29, but, uh, we'll get there later. So Jerry's worried about, uh, Ben having access to a sword. But, you know, Jacoby counters the worry with what he's doing is actually quite healthy. By reversing the South's defeat in the Civil War, he in turn will reverse his own emotional setback, which, you know, I mean, okay, um, you know, let's take away the subtlety and, you know, nail it down for everybody what is uh, thematically happening here, which, you know, isn't exactly a bad thing. It's just interesting to say the subtext out loud right in the middle of it. But yeah, Jacoby says, what he needs right now is both your understanding and a Confederate victory. So, yeah, this is when Ben goes into a rallying speech and says, you know, those who fought will be remembered for our bravery or the battle scars that we bear. You know, I, I feel like this is what he wants to feel like he's been doing during his downfall. You know, he wants this. um this dip that he's taken in his business to mean something. Uh, and then, you know, he goes on, we few, and then he turns on a fan right next to him. We happy few. And he grabs the, uh, the flag that's now flowing behind him. He says, we band of brothers onward to Washington. And, uh, you know, this is when Jacoby chimes in and goes into Dixie and, you know, Ben joins singing, uh, and, you know, Ben joins him in the singing. So they're singing together. And, uh, you know, they continue to even into the transition shot outside of the Great Northern and down the waterfalls. And, you know, will we see Ben's darkness, you know, his delusion be pushed back due to this? Uh, you know, the verdict's still out officially, but it's actually going to work eventually because everyone's making Ben feel safe in this delusion while he's cocooning and, you know, basically doing everything he can to feel like he can finally come out of this. And it's interesting to see, you know, all this, uh, all this blind support, um, trying to, uh, trying to coax him out this, you know, with this approach. The next time we see Jacoby, he's with Lana Milford. Um, you know, they're in the sheriff's station conference room. Uh, Lana is there with Jacoby and you know, he just says, I just spent almost the last 24 hours with this charming young lady. So kind of like how there's two Leos in the house, you know, one attacking Bobby and one attacking Shelly. You know, we've kind of got 
two frequencies worth of Jacoby, too. You know, he's in the Ben scene earlier in the day taking notes, and obviously he didn't just get there. You know, then he's also been with Lana this whole time, uh, or, you know, most of the time. You know, like technically there's a workaround, but it seems more like, you know, there might be two of this guy, <laughs> you know, just because, you know, the, the, um, the, the directors are allowed to move the scenes around wherever they want to because, you know, they don't assume that, you know, things like continuity like that would actually make a difference to the viewers. Yeah. So, I mean, it just wasn't a concern and it was stylistic and, uh, you know, for the flow of the plots, it makes sense. But, you know, as far as the flow of Jacoby, it kind of makes a mess of it. Uh, but, you know, whatever. It's all good. And um, it kind of works with the um, with the wonkiness of the Twin Peaks woodsiness. But yeah, so he spent almost the last 24 hours with this charming young lady. And as you can see, I have no bruises, no broken bones. So um, all of Dwayne's allegations are nonsense is what we get here. And, you know, so so what what's been happening? Jacoby's been testing her as a witch. <laughs> like, did did they uh, did they dump her in a river and see if she floated or something? You know, who knows? Um but you know what what um what Lana does possess, according to Jacoby, is heightened sexual drive, as he puts it, and a working knowledge of technique, anatomy, and touch that few men have the pleasure of experiencing or the skills to match. So you know, is he a a, a sexual therapist in the uh, most uh, question marky ways? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Jacoby. He's uh, he, he's an interesting character, especially back then. Yeah, he's 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 far. He is far away from his uh, understanding of shovels, I believe. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, now now Jacoby or, you know, at least the half of him that's not with Ben apparently has figured this out with Lana. Um, you know, Harry asks if it's hot in here and the guys answer. Yeah. So, you know um lana's pheromones are fully in um conquering mode here and uh you know cooper is the first to congratulate lana you know but you know like what's he congratulating her for what what did she do did she uh you know it's like, okay he uh he said that you know she's not a witch or whatever <laughs> i don't know um but anyway you know everybody's under lana's spell here um, and, you know, and then she, you know, to, uh, to accept the congratulations, she says, I could never have done it without Jacoby, you know, so like done what, you know, been proved she's not a witch, I guess. Um, but anyway, they're supposed to go bowling now. And, you know, she maintains eye contact with Cooper out the door. So after, after they leave, the guys try to cool off, but, you know, we hear Lana scream right away. And then, you know, they they draw their guns. And they poke their heads outside in the hallway, and that's where we see Dwayne there with a shotgun. Um, you know, Harry wants him to put it down, but um, you know, Dwayne just says, "If anybody moves, I'll blast her to king, blast her into kingdom come." And the hippie too, which is, you know, the dialogue is really, really funny, but it's just not super realistic. You know, based on all Jacoby just told them, you know, Cooper thinks that the mayor and Lana should talk things over alone um you know so i i can kind of see the logic there because everybody's influenced by lana so will the mayor blah 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 but you know why leave the mayor with the gun uh is it because he feels safe that way and you know he'll be open to lana's charms if he's in a safe cocoon of uh you know feeling like he's in control i don't know 
but you know the door's closed you know harry says now what and then you know cooper's arm arms are crossed and he's like um facing the camera and he says you know we wait and everybody else says we wait and you know this is my favorite commercial break usage because you know they come back and it's the exact same shot with the guys just standing there um you know using using the length of the commercial break to show just how long Dwayne and Lana have been in that room uh being able to speak so we're we're looking at around 3 minutes and um you know we we get Jacoby laughing on his own and Andy just says you know it's hard to wait so you know was that an entendre or a double entendre <laughs> yeah who knows with Andy um but um you know, then Cooper snaps out of it and, you know, they, they charge in and Lana's on his lap and, and, um, the mayor's face is lipsticked. And, um, you know, he, he just says, we've decided to adopt a child. And, you know, does that, <laughs> uh, you know, Lana says, you know, he's so much like Dougie. It feels like my husband's been brought back to life. So, you know, is this, um, life preservation on her part or actual belief, um, that, you know, she gets her Dougie back? Um, or, or, you know, is it both? It's probably a combination of both, honestly. Um, but you know, either way, her ability to mind control or, you know, sexually control or whatever it is, um, she's, she's essentially like a siren or a muse. Um, you know, like the, that's, I think the, uh, the archetype that she's supposed to be in this show, um, but you know all all of those skills are perfectly in working order and she's safe now and we can forget that everybody let her uh go into a room willingly with a uh with a man with a gun though you know now that she's you know put her effects on him we actually see him connecting with empathy kind of like how uh Evelyn turned the corner once she saw a little bit of um you know, love, it turned into empathy. And Dwayne admits things here, like, you know, like, I've been lonely and selfish. Um, but then, you know, he kind of, kind of turns and, you know, makes it a little smaller than he think, you know, than the offense was. And he says, I hope you all forget you, you'll all forgive me for my boorish behavior and, you know, attempted assault maybe. But, you know, then he says, come along, my dear. And, um, you know, they they just end the scene in comedy where, you know, Harry could definitely use something to drink and everybody else enthusiastically says, me too. And a little note about, about Nadine here. It's interesting that Jacoby doesn't get involved in Nadine's storyline to confer with Doc Hayward or anything, you know, because up to now it's been Jacoby involved there. But, you know, it does show how, um, how Jacoby's, av- uh, Jacoby's avant-garde treatment process um, actually fits really well in this town because, you know, we see, um, we see that it's endorsed by the pillars of the community in the medical field with Doc Hayward. You know, he's rolling with the delusion as well, just like everybody else. So, you know, it, it's one thing, you know, it, it's one thing to have Audrey respect Jacoby enough to bring him in for, um, for Ben because of Johnny Horn. Um, you know, he, he's been helping, he's been helping Johnny this whole time, but you know, it's, it's a completely other thing when the doctors, um, don't treat his behaviors as if he's a quack. So, um, you know, it's almost like those shades of his, you know, really are insightful and, um, you know, they do give him kind of 
a certain amount of insight into the world that is made up of Twin Peaks and its woods at the same time. And, um, yeah, yeah. For, for being stuck in a bunch of like random, uh, quote unquote comedy, uh, this episode, it's, um, it's still all thematically part of the same thing. And it's really cool to see it even in these quote unquote bad episodes. Yeah. Next episode we'll get, um, We'll get the conclusion to a number of these stories, and uh, we can uh, we can see how it all wraps up. But I think thematically, it's still going to hold true to what what's there at the foundation of Twin Peaks. You know, but before we go there, we're going to hit the sign off. And you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio and uh, TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations of Red Room and Oh God It Hurts HZ. And uh, join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and uh, content of my Electricity Nexus column at 25YearsLaterSite.com and join us on Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time as we do a little something extra to celebrate the first year of our podcast. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. Deepen and expand deepen the universe the show takes place the show takes place they'll really dig it this is a, a gift to all the fans